let's go inside under my skin you come around the other way a dream i have spent hello and welcome to another edition of act in context podcast my name is john delin and i'm here as always with my uh, co-host jennifer plum hey jennifer hey john how are you good Good to be here. Yeah, it's exciting to do number two. I guess this, uh-huh. technically this might be number three if we split one in half, but but we're uh, we're off to the races. You bet. Um, and we're especially excited to have with us um, Dr. Stephen Hayes. And um, maybe maybe Steve, I won't jump into a huge biography on you, but I guess it's fair to just give the introduction that you are one of the the co-founders of Acceptment and and Commitment Therapy. Is that true? That's true. <laughs> and, you're Can we get a prize? <laughs> and you're a professor at University of Nevada at Reno. And, um, oh, go ahead. No, that's exactly where I am. And I'm, <laughs> I'm glad to be here. And I'm actually really pleased to see this podcast happening. So I'm looking forward to the time we spend together. Well, thank you. Well, you thanks, too. For, thanks for joining us. Um, so, we we kind of picked the name Act in Context because it kind of had several meanings. Um, obviously, this is you know brought brought to us by the Association for um, Contextual and Behavioral Science, ACBS, and um, that context is an important piece uh, because of sort of the philosophical and scientific underpinnings of what we do. But there's also a play on words because we want to also provide the context for the development of the treatment acceptance and commitment therapy and relational frame theory. Um, and so that's kind of what the purpose of this um, few hours that we're going to spend with you is going to be about this time. We want to kind of give our listeners a bit on the history of uh, the field of psychotherapy, you know, in 15 or 20 minutes and uh, <laughs> set the stage for how psychology developed and what led us to the point where ACT would want or need to be developed to serve a certain niche or purpose. So it's kind of ambitious, but we think you're oh, up to yeah. it. Oh, yeah. He can handle it. <laughs> can you handle it? Can you handle it, Steve? Oh, yeah. I think so. And actually, you know, it's a, uh, it's a kind of play on words in another way, just because part of what that history is about is how to bring uh, contextual behavioral thinking uh, into the culture and into uh, the behavioral health professions. You actually uh, said the Association for Contextual and Behavioral Science, but there's no and there. It's contextual behavioral science, meaning it's a particular um, approach, a contextual approach to um, the behavioral sciences and to behavioral thinking more broadly. And so uh, we've got three levels of uh, plays on words. So the So the history will inform us well, I'm taking it. I think so. It'll t- t- maybe tell the story of how um, this minority view uh, of uh, contextual behavioral thinking has been uh, slowly but surely developing in the background uh, in the uh, scientific uh, approaches to uh, psychology and behavior and has, uh, has another face uh, in the form of ACT and RFT. Okay. So it's hard to not imagine that we start with Freud if we're going to start with psychotherapy, or or does it start or is the beginning earlier than Freud? 
Well, it could be because I think we could trace uh, the lines back to just behavioral influence as a deliberate uh, effort, you know, which goes back to uh, not just the beginning of psychology, but to the early, you know, early philosophers. And I mean, there's a reason why we have PhDs after our names, you know, the, the earliest thinkers on human behavior. Uh, and the sort of strand of that, of trying to bring a scientific approach to those matters hmm. and a more naturalistic and a monistic approach to those matters, which is, uh, you know, part of the story here. But, you would, you know, if you wanted to uh, speak of uh, uh, a time when um, uh, psychotherapy entered into the culture more broadly, uh, you'd do a lot worse than uh, starting with Freud and... Uh, and his uh, emphasis on the uh, the life within and the role of the unconscious. And, and um, you know, that set the stage, I think, for the culture to become more interested in psychological matters and try to go from a common sense uh, perspective to one that was informed by theory and, and data. The kind of data that the Freudians used were a little different than the ones that we like to use, but uh, you know, he was definitely a scientifically trained and scientifically interested uh, person. So he brought that combination of uh, going beyond common sense and trying to be concerned about theory and uh, data to uh, thinking about uh, the inner life of people. And um, that's, I think, true of all of the approaches to psychotherapy and behavior change in the modern era as well. We, we owe a debt to the Freudian tradition for that. Okay. And, you know, Freud, Freud's always, you know, associated with interpretation of dreams and of, uh, you know, some of his theories on behavior in terms of, you know, sexuality and other types of things. Right. Um, does, does, does any of that in, in terms of where it was valuable or not valuable sort of play an important role in how the, how the history of the science evolved? Were there lessons, positive or negative, that we learned other than than just sort of the, the type of data that he was looking at or not looking at? Well, I was just speaking about the, the positive debt that we owe him, but it wasn't all in one direction. There's also some problems that, uh, in terms of how he approached things. Um, you know, Freud uh, uh, you know, specifically embraced a way of theorizing and a way of uh, uh, collecting data and information that made it very hard to disprove uh, particular uh, ideas because he explicitly re rejected, and it was put in front of him by some of the uh, early uh, disciples and adherents, especially here in the United States, of the possibility of trying to link Freudian thinking to an experimental behavioral science. And he specifically decided to stay with the, um, the clinical methods that he had developed, which made it very hard to filter out um, clever clinical insights and interesting ideas from things that were uh, just uh, goofy and went beyond the data. So, I mean, to this day, people argue about uh, many of Freud's ideas in a ways that make, make it hard to decide which of, the, which of them are important, which of them are not. And uh, that's not true of any of the mature sciences. There, there, if you look at 
chemistry or physics or biology, they all have ways of going beyond earlier ideas. Uh, ultimately, most ideas in science are shown to be false in, in some ways, and if you give them enough time, and that's a really important part to the progress of science. And so he created a problem for us as a field of, while both, while opening up human imagination and human culture to thinking about these issues in a deeper way that was not just based on common sense and that was linked to data, the way he did it made it hard to disconfirm uh, some of his ideas. So I'm old enough that my earliest days were really part of the rebellion against uh, Freudian thinking. The very first journal in behavior therapy came out in 1963. In 1966, I was sitting in as an undergraduate uh, watching uh, a person who became my undergraduate mentor work clinically doing systematic desensitization with a patient. So that's only three years later. So I've seen the, the development of behavior therapy and then the rise of cognitive behavior therapy and some of the changes there. And if you look at what was happening in the early days of behavior therapy, what people were trying to do is to, they were trying to link the empirical and analytic precision of the uh, laboratory-based uh, uh, learning psychology in particular to a systematic effort to develop and validate methods to alleviate uh, 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 human behavior, uh, human suffering and be behavioral problems. And you're specifically and, talking about Skinner and, and well, Skinner Pavlov. And and Pavlov and Volpe and the early uh, behavior therapists and behavior analysts. In those earliest days, they were in an amalgam. Later on, they came to view themselves as somewhat distinct, but those strands, those streams in behavioral psychology met together, sort of saw their common interests. And uh, my earliest exposure to psychology was right at the rise of that time, and I immediately gravitated to it. The reason I personally gravitated to it, and it echoes a little bit with your beginning uh, question, John, is uh, when I was a, a high school student, uh, I was so, uh, sort of enchanted by the, the coming together of three things uh, of the importance of looking within, and I was very interested in people like Rogers and things like that, the importance of uh, human development. I was interested in people like Maslow and you know, how can we do better, the issue of, you know, ideas of peak experiences and so forth. Uh, quickly, and this is in the 60s, the whole development of human culture. I lived on a commune. I would, you know, was sort of trying to think through how do we organize our societies to, to kind of um, uh, progress uh, better. And from my, to my way of thinking, behavioral psychology gave you a way to sort of square that circle of being interested in the world within, the world without, and put knowledge into our homes, our schools, our relationships, and yes, our clinics, and do that with the guidance of a, a kind of science that was respectful of the complexity of the human condition on the one hand, but wasn't going to compromise in uh, scientific standards using very much a Western science kind of view of that on the other. And it was kind of interesting to me that you... Um, could have a per person like Skinner writing a, a book on uh, uh, a utopian vision for how to organize society in Walden too, 
on the one hand, on the other hand, uh, be a very uh, tight experimental scientist with uh, his hat on in a, in a different uh, direction. And that, I thought, was just uh, a really neat possibility of trying to put those two halves uh, together. Hey, Steve, g- give our listeners, the ones who aren't familiar with Skinner at all, and it's going to sound absurd maybe given how, how much you've dealt into behaviorism, but g- give our give our listeners just a little bit of a sense for Skinner and what he was trying to do and, and what his methods were and how they kind of differed from kind of non-scientific Freudism. Yeah, and it's a it's just... It's not just non-scientific versus scientific, but it's a particular kind of science. It's funny because that question is really at the heart of what contextual behavioral science is and what a contextual approach is. Um, and it's controversial. There's people who are Skinnerian scholars who view him in ways that are very differently different than the way that I would view him. So I'll, I'll tell that story from my uh, point of view. But Skinner for sure was a monist. He was never anti... What does that uh, mean? What does that, what does that mean, monist? He tried to conceive of a human being from a natural science perspective, uh, holding on to the concept of one world. And it's just very easy for reasons that have to do with culture, but also psychology, to when you're dealing with some of the deepest human issues to uh, lose your contact with a natural science perspective because our ability to think and to reason, to do what we're doing right now, uh, creates the capacity to intend, to choose, to expect, to value, to plan, to reason, to evaluate verbally. And uh, we're used to thinking about that just from our culture in rather dualistic terms. We, we uh, really kind of find the angel within that uh, motivates these, these kinds of things. Uh, and, and in doing that, lose the, the potential for how far could you take an analysis of human behavior, human psychology, if you stayed within a natural science stream. Uh, Skinner was never uh, a kind of anti- religious or anti-spiritual or even anti-mentalistic. He, he was just interested in trying to foster a naturalistic perspective and see how far we could take it. Yeah. So just, to, just to recap that, so when you say, um, you know, the, the dualistic perspective, is it safe to say that a dualistic perspective would think of those things like reasoning and valuing and things like that as a some function of the mind or the psyche or... Yes, and would view that as something of fundamentally different stuff than the the other stuff that's Mm. in the world. And, um, you know, we had a history of doing that in the natural sciences. We've lost it. But at one time, if you wanted to understand why an object would fall to the ground, you would speak of the object, you know, wanting to return to the ground and things of that kind. And only... um, as science advanced, would it come into a, uh, a more naturalistic perspective? And as we understood more of how gravity worked and was influenced by mass and so forth. And you're not talking about super supernatural beliefs, trying to explain human behavior by the influences of a, of a devil or of Satan or of things like that. Is that not 
what you mean when you say dualism? It could it could mean that it okay. could mean that and and um, but there's there's all these gradations of essentially creating a stand-in for uh, a deities that had the capacity to directly influence. You can create that stand-in in the form of the human psyche and just give it that same capacity. Mm-hmm. And it so- is, you know you have to be careful here because. Um, especially with ACT, because we're, we're dealing with issues of spirituality and we're coming right into areas in which religion is an important kind of human institution. And we kind of have to be respectful of where, what science can do, what it can't do. And if science can't tell you uh, kind of who you are or can't give you meaning in your life, but it can do a lot of, about understanding how your behavior works and how things came to be. And Skinner definitely took a very strong stand that he was going to try to understand human behavior in a uh, relentlessly naturalistic and monistic way by just never appealing to entities that don't have to do with the history and circumstances of an organism interacting in and with this one world. Now, whether you call that world, uh, material or not was never interesting to him and actually he several times warned against trying to do that thought even that was dualistic as if you could stand aside and kind of determine what's real and what isn't he was just more pragmatic he was interested in our interaction in and with what is uh, and treating that as a, a single monistic thing okay got it so he just wanted to he wanted to push the limits of what we can know Right, that's right, and to do it within that approach, and what he brought to it was a sensitivity to behavior as an evolving system that occurred in time and in space, and he was interested in breaking down the behavioral stream pragmatically into the before and after of behavior and the current context of behavior, so he will keep coming back to contingencies of reinforcement he would talk about which are these relationships between the state of affairs that were there right before you engaged in a behavior and then what was created by that action as you interacted with the world and this is a a way of thinking that is very odd it's not our normal way of thinking our normal way of thinking is more uh, unidirectional and causal in a kind of simple-minded way skinner was very much more like uh, Skinner to psychology is like Darwin to biology. He's trying to use a selectivist-based view of causality in which uh, you have natural variation that occurs in behavior and that within the lifetime of an individual and across the lifetime of individuals and culture, and of course within the evolution of a species, there's variation and selection. And so... Uh, I came to psychology through this Skinnerian view, very much interested in a naturalistic but also functional and contextual perspective that was always interested in how does behavior move us from one state of affairs to another? What selects it? And in what contexts is it likely to occur and to be retained? And so it um, we're part of that stream that really is, I think, would uh, uh, hold as its lines of uh, heritage 
people like William James in the history of psychology and uh, people like Darwin in the history of the life sciences. And even though it's just totally rudimentary, just tell us a classic example that, that Skinner would do that would that would illustrate the A, the B, and the C. The, um... Yeah, that was uh, Ogden Lindsley's, uh, who was a, a student of Skinner, the antecedent behavior consequence, or ABC, a way of uh, partitioning this flow. He he didn't use those acro- the, that acronym or that? He actually didn't. He didn't uh, invent it. Ogden did, but... Um, uh, he did uh, use it, and it's a it's an easy mnemonic. It's easy to remember it uh, that way. One danger of uh, of the ABC type of thinking, and you have to immediately caution, is that we're talking about a stream or a flow that, mm. for our purposes, we stop almost like taking a snapshot and we break it up and right, say, "Okay, right. there's the antecedent, there's the behavior." But really, it, it's a dynamic thing. If you could put hyphens between the A and B and C and view it almost as one thing, you'd be closer to what it is that we're trying to do in contextual behavioral thinking. Gotcha. Um, so, uh, you know, in the uh, conditions in which, uh, uh, for example, uh, um, uh, you know, you come home and your mother asks you uh, whether or not you're hungry, uh that's a an occasion that you know you now have a number of different uh, food that you can uh, access and if you've been uh, food deprived for a period of time you haven't eaten since lunch you know the request that you make there will very likely lead to food and food of a characteristic type uh, liquid of characteristic type and you could break down just that social interchange between a child and his mother in terms of these antecedents presented by coming home and the mother making the request, the behavior of a child making a request of a particular kind of food, the consequences that then would follow. And, uh, uh, you know, if you have dealt with a young child, you know that that is something that, uh, as common sense as it is, evolves over time. Very young children won't be able to tell you what they want. They'll tell you things that they want that they then won't eat. Uh you know, that is a behavior that sort of shapes up over time to be a whole unit so that you can actually uh, engage in actions that will bring you in contact with consequences that will uh, maintain that behavior, that will actually support, reinforce, would be the behavioral word we would use, that behavior. Uh, so it's not just a matter of breaking it down into the befores and after, but also looking at the dynamic relationship between that and whether or not behavior strengthens or weakens over time in those uh, circumstances as a result of those hyphens that are there in the A and the B and the C. Well, I think of this as a dynamic uh, kind of uh, interactive view of behavior, viewing it as an evolving function in time and situation in which we're constantly looking at the transitions from one state of affairs to another, we're going from here to there, of going from, for example, uh, being food deprived to uh, having food that is uh, enjoyable to eat. And that transition uh, of an antecedent behavior consequence relationship as being the dynamic unit that drives the evolution of behavior. Okay, that that makes a lot of sense. Um, So that gives us a sense for what Skinner was thinking about. How did things progress? Well, Skinner um, thought that he's trying to look at how you could think of everything that way 
And it's a pretty bold idea if you back up to the early part of the last century when he was doing this work, because there was so much that we didn't know. Uh, even the idea that non-human animals uh, will repeat behaviors in a given situation that give rise to characteristic uh, consequences uh, was was not well understood. How did that occur? How often does it have to occur? By what schedule? What amount of consequences are important? Under what conditions of deprivation will that work? Um, one of my intellectual great-grandfathers, I went back and sort of pursued my academic lineage and found a person even before Skinner who was doing work on the law of effect. And literally, they would publish articles like, we put food at the end of the arm in the maze and the rat went there and ate it. And then they went there more and more often. And you have to imagine the time in which that, in the highest journal, uh, the best journal of the land would be something that would be really important to publish. Now it's something that is just uh, common sense. And there, you, know, you, you will see it referred to just on the newscasts or in Oprah or just uh, as an everyday fact of life that we all understand that there are contingencies. We may not use that word. You know, mo most parents know about time out. Most parents, parents know about reinforcement, positive reinforcement and so on. But at the time, this wasn't understood. And what Skinner wanted to do, unlike some, he was uh, doing work in animal learning, but he wasn't interested in non-human animals and their behavior alone and by themselves. He was interested in trying to come up with tools, analytic tools, ideas, concepts, principles that we could use to unlock human complexity, that we could use to understand what you and I are doing right now or what the listeners are going to do over the next hour or what's going on in our homes and schools. And his idea was, is let's start with a relatively barren environment, relatively simple uh, response types, relatively um, easy to study organisms, but sufficient complexity, behavioral complexity, uh, that um, we could ask some important questions with it. And uh, it, it, so a lot of the principles that we apply even today in psychology with, with kids and in schools and working with uh, language developments and so forth emerged from the animal learning labs in the middle part of the last century in the early to middle part where some of these principles were worked out with uh, the ubiquitous uh, rats and pigeons uh, to try to figure out how learning processes uh, work and then when those principles were well crafted trying to bring them into issues of human complexity. And it worked very, very well. If you have an autistic child, uh, you know, you probably are looking for someone who understands those principles, who can shape uh, more effective communication behavior in that young child and hopefully maybe even deflect them from a lifelong struggle with, uh, uh, with autism. Uh, but the behavioral tradition uh, ran into... Uh, various difficulties. Part of it was because of the earliest days of the behavioral tradition specifically was sort of set up to fight against uh, being interested in the world within. Uh, behaviorism is usually linked to John B. Watson, and although he was one of the 
earliest researchers on things like thinking and so forth, he really did think of thinking as the moving of the larynx. He tried to take everything that would be thought of as something going on within and turn it into muscle movements or glandular secretions. Mm. So that was one problem, and Skinner had to learn how to negotiate through that, and he did it in a very interesting philosophical way. But maybe we'll have time to talk about And then the other problem was in order to really deal more adequately with the world within, if we can find a place to do it in a legitimate way behaviorally, we have to know a lot more about language and cognition. And uh, I believe Skinner never really fully got over that hump. A lot of what ACT is, an RFT, is a modern face to this contextual, behavioral, inductive, monistic, functional uh, position once you have a relatively adequate account of human language and cognition, which we think we actually have, not a final answer, not the full answer, but an angle and at least part of an answer. And, uh, and then doing what Skinner's original intent was, which was to work out these principles and then to bring them into areas of human complexity. So that was a, an, his early vision. It's the vision of the contextual behavioral science community. And really the difference is, is it's 50 years later. And, you know, a lot of things have happened and we've developed some knowledge, we think, that has helped us over some of the stumbling blocks that faced that tradition in the middle part of the last century. So, so Steve, is, is a part of what um, what you're saying here is, you know, what I'm hearing is that there's a lot that behavioral thinking can offer um, but when we what John and I were talking about in our first podcast is how act is part of the cognitive behavioral tradition right. so can you speak a little bit from this idea of how language and cognition fit in and, and why we're sort of in the cognitive behavioral tradition not just the sure. behavioral tradition yeah did did Skinner fall out of fashion you he know? did he certainly what, did what and led to that what, what were the causes well, of that it was a, a combination of things and it wasn't just Skinner but it was behavioral thinking more generally it happened both in uh, basic experimental psychology and it happened in clinical psychology and all the behavioral health disciplines. It, I said I first sat in on my first behavior therapy session in 1966, just three years after uh, the very first issue of Behavior Research and Therapy, which was the first behavior therapy journal. There's now dozens. Uh, it grew very strongly through the 60s and the 70s. But by the end of the 1970s, in the middle to the end of that, clinicians were becoming frustrated because they couldn't see how to use these principles of contingency thinking, the, the antecedents, behavior, and consequences uh, type thinking, and those from the Pavlovian tradition, uh, the uh, salivating dogs are really thinking about this, the association between stimuli that can lead to elicited uh, uh, responses. Those two behavioral streams, neither one of them ever provided an adequate approach to, to human language and cognition. And clinicians became frustrated because you could see right in front of you that so many of people's problems really come in part by how they think about things. They're called mental health problems for a reason. And it isn't just sloppy thinking or there's something really important inside there that, um, 
the behavioral tradition couldn't fully explain how you could address. Did it want to? It wanted to, and, and you know, Skinner actually created an entire approach to language uh, in his book Verbal Behavior in 1957. Uh, Pavlov came up with an approach with his uh, second signaling system, but neither of them were successful empirically, according to the, the researchers who are interested in human language, and neither of them were fully successful practically. Uh, in terms of the clinic or in terms of language training, language acquisition, things of that kind. There were some successes. I don't want to paint it all as a dark picture. But clinicians in particular, and I felt it myself as a young professional, uh, I knew we needed a different approach to understanding how people think, how people reason, how they talk about, analyze uh, and uh, interpret their problems and the solutions to those problems. Um, as a graduate student, I had sort of made a little promise to myself, uh, in part influenced by a very charismatic guy named Willard Day, here from the University of Nevada. I was a student at West Virginia University at the time. He gave a very powerful talk there and uh, uh, kind of challenging us to come up with a behavioral approach to language and cognition that would really work. And I kind of adopted it as something that I was determined to do in my career in some way. But in the early years, I just could not figure out a way to do it. I've made all the same mistakes that others made uh, before me because many generations of folks have tried to figure out how to do this. Meanwhile, in the mid to late 70s, while I was, um, you know, by, by that time, uh, coming out of the uh, of graduate school and beginning my academic career, a number of folks said, well, let's, instead of trying to take the principles from the learning lab, since they're not giving us what we need to understand uh, language and cognition, let's go directly to our patients and start asking them what they think and categorize their thinking patterns into various kinds of theoretical schemes. The social learning people, people influenced by folks like Bandura did that. Uh, Aaron Beck, Tim Beck did that uh, with his work that led really to the modern core of cognitive behavior therapy. Albert Ellis, an early uh, a clinical uh, uh, developer, uh, uh, the, the uh, originator of uh, rational emotive therapy, which later became rational emotive behavior therapy. Um, all and many others, the, uh, Michael Mahoney, met many others, went in this direction and began to create uh, clinically-based theories of cognition that would allow us to interpret what our clients were doing in a way that would lead to new treatments. And in particular, they began to emphasize the importance of catching cognitive errors uh, Ellis would talk about irrational cognitions, or uh, you know, Beck would talk about the uh, underlying beliefs or schemas uh, that would uh, misdirect uh, a human behavior. And we could measure it, and we could help clients directly address it, that they could detect their own cognitive errors 
to look at the information that they had, the evidence that they had for them, and they could dispute, challenge, and correct those errors and think in a more healthy way. It's a very logical thing to do, but it did mean that this bottom-up tradition of let's get principles that we can take into human complexity and then take that apart. So the idea was that you'd both bring laboratory-based principles and uh, a good scientific evidence of the impact of the procedures and bring those together. That was abandoned. And instead, what you would do is you would use clinically-based theories of cognition, really abandoning the bottom-up laboratory-based tradition, and you would try to develop intervention methods directly and then test them. Cognitive behavior therapy became, it was an amalgam of this, the traditional behavioral approaches that had come out of the learning lab and the new more cognitive approaches that have come out of clinical theories of cognition uh, developed by the psychotherapy developers that I've mentioned and others like them. And it, it made a big difference. It moved us forward, but it did put us on a different path and one that uh, I think in hindsight we can see had certain kinds of uh, 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 limitations that we're living with today and ACT is trying to overcome. Okay. Okay. So, Steve, how did, how did Beck and, or Ellis or some, some of the gentlemen you mentioned, how did they view what they were doing as different from Freud? They, well, they, they, uh, some of them actually had been trained because of the dominance of Freudian thinking many clinicians have been trained in an analytic approach. And actually both of those persons had some analytic training in, those, in their background, many others did. But they really wanted the kind of rigor that they saw in behavior therapy. And especially around the developing well-crafted procedures that are replicable, that are well understood, and that can be tested when applied to fairly well-defined uh, human uh, behavioral problems. Uh, so that was different. They embraced experimental Western science in a way that Freud explicitly decided not to embrace. He understood it. He knew it was there, decided not to. That, that's a big difference. Uh, and the other is just the influence of behavioral thinking that had really pushed people to be more focused on the actual, what you actually see and a little less focused on a lot less focused on the more um, convoluted and kind of interpretive kinds of things that you see in the analytic tradition. Um, like, but, the, like the whole Freudian Oedipal complex or whatever. Yes, for example. I mean, if uh, little Hans, for ex if you take the a Freud, classic Freudian example, I mean, little Hans was a, a little boy who developed a fear of going outside, didn't want to go to school, wanted to stay home with his mother. And, uh, you know, Freud, by the time he had analyzed this case, had that whole thing happening because the little boy was sexually attracted to his mother and uh, knew that his father would be extremely upset about it, might even attack him, might even castrate him, and that he had referred his fear to not his father, because that was too frightening since he was dependent upon him, but to horses that were outside that he might see who had big teeth and <laughs> might bite him. Wow. <laughs> on kind of like how it wore glasses. You know, and it, it got farther and farther away from 
what you're actually seeing now, you know, if you look at the case of little Hans and then the early classic behavior therapy literature, there was a long articles written about that case. For example, little Hans had seen just a month or so before he developed this phobia, a horse drawn cart fall over in the streets with a lot of screaming and crying and wailing and so forth. And he became afraid of horses and afraid to go outside and wanted to stay home with his mother. Well, you know, behaviorists could look at that and say, now this is something that's just been shaped as a result of the aversive experience and natural patterns of avoidance. Then plus mother is, you know, pretty nice person to hang around with. You know, he takes care of him, <laughs> feeds him, cuddles him. Why, why, who would want to go to school if that was <laughs> uh, And, you know, you don't have to do the kind of crazy, wild thinking that Freud was. But, but by Freud embracing the clinical case study method, he had no other form of verification or falsification to right. okay. filter out among these ideas as one of them, which ones were wild and which ones had some uh, attraction to them. So what, what, would a, what would a behaviorist say about the idea of the unconscious then? Well, it's kind of uh, interesting. Depends what wing. I, I, I'm of a wing that would say this, that co- the unconscious is old home week for behaviorists. If you think about... Um, uh, uh, the normal kind of view in the culture, what's conscious is understandable and obvious, and what's unconscious is creepy and kind of weird, but, uh, you know, alluring and attractive, just the idea that it exists. And, but, of course, coming from the animal learning tradition where you're studying these very uh, sometimes automatic processes, it's hardly the case that uh, a, a non-human animal really understands the influences over their behavior that uh, a learning psychologist can show are actually there. You'd have to say, from the point of view of the animal, a lot of these influences are unconscious. But what's strange to the animal learning tradition is consciousness. <laughs> what is that? Right. Because what we're doing right now doesn't have very clear analogs to uh, other uh, non-human animals. Mm-hmm. They do communicate, but there's very little evidence that non-human animals communicate in ways that are like human beings, that they use symbols, uh, for example, that the listener and the speaker understand that they're uh, sort of interacting within the same system and the same, th- and it means the same thing just from two different roles, that you can communicate uh, in that way using arbitrary signs that culture can evolve, that it can influence people even after you're dead in the form of books and so on. I mean, there's so many things that we do that are just not evident in non-human animals, and and that's pretty mysterious. And that was the challenge Skinner tried to get over, Watson and uh, um, uh, Pavlov tried to get over, and didn't. And that was exactly where the cognitive behavior therapy folks went with a clinical theory of cognition, essentially walking right in, say, let's uh, not try to do a bottom-up account of cognition. We're just going to ask our clients uh, what they're thinking. So that, you know, it, the, the cognitive behavioral stream is very, very heavily influenced by the behavioral stream. Right. Uh, and most of its sort of meta-analytic kind of scientific commitments are similar, but it has this strategic difference of, of we can't wait for the laboratory folks to figure out cognition. We're going to go right in there and do it ourselves. And so 
it, was there some – this is something I've never gotten a good answer on. Was there a point where it was referred to as cognitive therapy and then people started complaining and saying, let's get some more of this behavioral stuff back in and all of a sudden they started adding the B between the C and the T or was it not that – you know, that's an interesting thing, and I think you may be seeing it right now. Uh, you know, act as part of cognitive behavior therapy, but it has a particular take. But some of its takes challenge some of the takes that are that are there now. But there's a process of assimilation and accommodation that happens within scientific traditions. Right. If you read the various, very, very earliest uh, writings of uh, Aaron Beck, you'll see that he wrote of cognitive therapy in the earliest days as a in, a in a triangulated way. You had, you know, psychoanalysis, behavior therapy, and cognitive therapy. And oh, really, he wasn't writing about an alliance with cognitive, with behavior therapy in any way. These were kind of uh, a triangle, and cognitive therapy was going to uh, win out. Mm. But as it impacted on the behavioral community, the folks who actually were interested in and reading and listening to Beck and I remember those early conventions. I mean, I remember how much excitement there was because he had been working for a period of time and then it was brought into the conventions like uh, the Association for Advancement of Behavior Therapy and the enthusiasm of, here's something we can use. And immediately the people who brought it in started calling it cognitive behavior therapy. They didn't want at that time to call it cognitive therapy. Over time, it's come to be called cognitive therapy uh, more the Academy of Cognitive Therapy, etc. I don't think Beck ever really changed on that. But there's so much accommodation and assimilation that um, there's really almost nothing from the behavioral tradition that has been left out of the CBT tradition. Maybe the principles and training are different, but none of the procedures that worked or anything that people want to give away, they want that in there too whether that's exposure, contingency management, skills training, or what have you. So um, cognitive behavior therapy really became, uh, I think, the field itself uh, deciding that it was going to accommodate this change by simply adding uh, a term to the ter pre-existing term. Okay, okay. So it's like this amoeba that keeps absorbing the things around it. Exactly. That's exactly what, and it, it's relevant today because the acceptance, mindfulness, values-based work, the ACT work in particular, uh, some of that has been cast in ways that really present a challenge to CBT, but CBT is finding a way to accommodate it, and the, the amoeba is uh, uh, eating the innovations. <laughs> and, and frankly, I think that's fine if the, it's fine to a degree, you know, if we can find a way that what's uh, eaten is allowed to produce the value that it can produce, then that's that's good for everybody. There's no reason uh, to think of science as a, a revolutionary process. It's an evolutionary process. Gotcha. I think this is a good transition just to, to bring up a, a set of terms that, Steve, you've used and um, has uh, sometimes you've been criticized for using but might be a useful way of thinking about some of these um, evolutions of, of thinking, the idea of the first and second and third waves of yes. psychotherapy. Can you speak to that a little bit? Yeah, I've, I've been speaking essentially about the first and second waves that the uh, you know, the rise of behavior therapy, the first wave of it, which was really in rebellion to against psychoanalysis and also to the uh, humanistic psychology of Carl Rogers and things like that, uh, particularly around the issue of, of the centrality of experimental science. 
Okay, um, so I'm sorry. So Steve, so Freud and and some of those other things get left off because they weren't sufficiently rooted in the type of science that we're interested in. Is that why exactly Freud, right. Freud wasn't the first wave? Exactly right. And okay. you know, people were interested in their theories to a degree and even tried. It was a famous book by Dollard and Neil Miller that tried to actually do a behavioral interpretation of psychoanalysis. But uh, eventually the behavioral tradition sort of broke away and said, no, we're going to we're going to start afresh uh, and we're going to create a, a scientifically based uh, a form of intervention hmm. that is systematically linked to science, experimental science at every step of the way. Gotcha. And that applied these laboratory based principles. The second wave, really the core of the second wave initially strategically was to bring in clinical theories of cognition and free clinicians up to pursue what people think, feel, and remember as a target without having to do a dance of accommodating that to uh, the, uh, uh, frankly, less uh, flexible behavioral principles way of speaking about uh, inner events. I mean, there's if you want to talk about thoughts, feelings, memories, and bodily sensations in tight behavioral language, it's not a natural language for it. And it it liberated the field from that. So it, uh, let, you, it, let, it let people, scientists, dive into thoughts, cognitions, feelings, without the encumberment of the the difficult language that behaviorism sometimes exactly. Yeah. At the same time, SR learning theory and to some and uh, 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 some of the other forms of behaviorism, not all forms, uh, in the basic area, was collapsing into cognitive psychology. Can you speak to what what is SR learning theory for our listeners? Well, there's a there is a there's multiple strands in the behavioral tradition. The strand I've been speaking mostly about is this functional contextual behavior analytic strand, Skinner strand. But there was another strand that was represented by the learning theorists, people like um, Clark Hall or Spence, which was uh, a relatively um, a, a hypothetical deductive approach to it. It was one in which we wanted to create a grand theory. You were willing to hypo- to hypothesize uh, uh, internal entities like drive states and so forth. Uh, you were willing to theorize in a way that wasn't sort of humble, bottom-up, and inductive, but was sort of a grand laying out of a theory, and then you'd look to see whether or not it predicted in areas you hadn't even looked before. And that approach, based on behaviorism, very much committed to principles of associationism, uh, grew but then collapsed, and it collapsed particularly over the issue of higher cognition. You just could not figure out how you could build a mechanistic, associationistic account of human language. So just to clarify a little bit, when you say SR theory, what that really refers to is stimulus and response, Yeah, correct? thank yeah. you. <laughs> yeah, the SR, is, it was... Uh, uh, it was not this kind of more Darwinian selectivist view of causality. It was much more of a push-pull, click-click kind of efficient causality, in which stimuli sort of uh, triggered responses. Which mm-hmm. That association was sort of stamped in by repetition. Um, and we were going to try to build human complexity uh, using these uh, principles of association. Mm. And, uh, and the what happened in the basic science is 
those folks who are quite comfortable with using these more mechanistic metaphors in about a five or 10 year period moved to using the computer as the organizing metaphor and saying, well, maybe it isn't really mm. like push, pull, click, click, like hydraulic statuary or mm. a clock, or maybe it's something more like uh, the com- these new computers here where you have memory storage and you're accessing the memory and you're processing information. And so the modern science of information processing, which was there in the computer sciences, got linked to learning and that happened right about the same time that the the second wave emerged in clinical psychology and the so, clinical disciplines. So you've got the clinicians who are who are excited to be able to use to talk about cognition and to influence it in some way or to use it as a useful tool for some kind of outcome that they care about for hopefully alleviating human suffering. But then you've got this other sort of behavior, uh, basic scientific that's approach right. that's starting to look a little bit more like this sort of a information processing, like the mind as the computer kind of deal. Exactly. Is that what you're saying? Okay. Exactly. And mm-hmm. it, it, not, it didn't really give the clinicians very much actually to do. There's very little that came in the early days, especially from information processing directly to cognitive therapy or cognitive behavior therapy. But what it gave was a sense that we were doing something progressive. And here, you know, the more and more uh, money and interest are going into, you know, uh, trying to think of the mind as a computer. And we are going directly into looking at uh, the mind clinically. And we're, and we're going to do that in a scientific uh, way. The, as I said, the, the beginning of the core commitment there, I think, was to allow the freedom to develop uh, clinical theories of cognition. But very quickly, the core assumption came to be that uh, people's emotions and behaviors were caused by their uh, maladapt uh, their their cognitions and maladaptive emotions, maladaptive behaviors would be caused by maladaptive beliefs and uh, maladaptive uh, 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 cognition. Um, Steve? Sorry, I have a a question about that real quick. I watched watched like one of, um, I believe it was Aaron Beck's last kind of presentations before, uh, has he passed away? Before, Before he passed away, I think. No, 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 he's still okay. Still okay, okay. Well. Uh, you're probably thinking of Albert Ellis, who did indeed die just yes. a couple of years ago. Well, I, uh, I, I, well, I, I, very old, but very much alive. Okay, I, I think very it, sweet guy. Uh, I, I was able to give him a nice hug last time I saw him. Okay, I'm pretty sure it was Beck. So, it, so I just had assumed he would passed away. But they were kind of celebrating his contribution to psychotherapy. Yes, and he kind of outlined exactly what you just said that. That we, you know, what we did was very bold and creative. We realized that somehow if you had thoughts that weren't accurate, if you had thoughts that 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 somehow didn't represent reality, that that could affect how you felt and how you behaved. And it could even make you do things that you shouldn't do and lead a sad life. And he was talking about something that for me, someone who's kind of new to psychotherapy, I'm like, wow, that's world shattering and innovative to to realize that that you're thinking, if you think in incorrect ways, it can lead you to feel things and do things that you shouldn't do. Like, how in the world 
was that revolutionary? Well, you know, the culture has moved, and I am old enough to remember when I would try out some of these methods. You know, I did cognitive behavioral therapy. I was trained how to do it, and I did research on it. I have at least eight or ten studies, even before the development of ACT. We were actively uh, researching it. If you would sit with a client and actually have them do things like thought recording, what are your thoughts, exactly what did you think, and teach them to look within, it was revolutionary. People simply were not thinking that way. I mean, of course they were thinking, but they weren't used to noticing, catching, categorizing, analyzing their thinking in a way that now it's just in Cosmo, it's in Red Book, it's on Oprah, it's in the culture. Everybody does it, but the culture has changed. So they weren't and, thinking about thoughts. No, and in <laughs> fact, if you're not sure about that, go to some parts of the world where these approaches have not fully penetrated, and it's a shock to people sometimes to try to have that conversation. It isn't necessarily how people think about their own thoughts, to sort of stop, look at them, categorize them, see them as discrete entities, look at whether or not they're true or false, testable or not. And uh, so that's one thing that is there. The other thing that is there is you have to remember that the behavioral revolution a la Watson was against a kind of early wave of introspectionism, of trying to understand the world within by breaking it down into small elemental units of, you know, of color and uh, shape. And, and it turned out to be kind of a fool's errand, not that introspectionism is invalid. Actually, Skinner helped bring it back in, into vogue in some ways, but that um, some of these early ideas from the British associationists and others didn't pan out very well, and, and they weren't seeming to lead to a progressive science. So Watson, you know, his... his Psychology as the behaviorist views it in 1913 was a rebellion against that now almost 100 years ago. And when the cognitive therapists started to try to introduce these ideas in the early 70s and the 60s, there was a lot of resistance. You know, people did not want to talk about thoughts. They yes. wanted to talk about behaviors. And the people I'm talking about are the scientists who had fought a tough battle over the preceding three or four decades mm. to getting psychology out of a phase in which it was all too easy to explain human behavior just by pointing to whatever you would imagine their motivations mm. might be mm -hmm. and instead getting them really to look at the their their behavior and the the context and history of that behavior so there was a straitjacket almost that was put on the early clinicians and that explains something that's still here today. I mean, you can find a kind of chest-thumping, kind of uh, fist-shaking, uh, uh, even anger, but a certainly a, a energy around we're not going to be put into the straitjack of, of uh, behavioral ease and of not talking about what we have to talk about, which is what do people feel, think, sense, and remember. Mm. Wow. And it, it, it took some courage. You have to you know, really applaud, I think, uh, some of the early CBT folks who stood up to uh, some intellectual bullying, really, of uh, people trying to uh, uh, will away an issue by refusing to allow it to be talked about. Now, and that starts bringing you up closer to the, 
the the whole history of ACT and where it came from because I told you, although I was there at the beginning of the behavior therapy movement, and I was coming out as a professional at the beginning of the cognitive behavior therapy movement, I always believed that ultimately progress would require uh, principles that were robust, that were precise, that had broad scope. And the what the Animal Learning Lab had been able to do, I thought was wonderful, but I could not deny that it had failed in the area of human language and cognition. So, um, you know, my career starts with that dual commitment of yes, this functional bottom-up contextual behavioral monistic approach probably makes sense. We really do want laboratory-based principles and well-defined procedures that are tested scientifically. We want both those things, but no, we cannot explain this problem away. People think, feel, sense, and remember. They talk to themselves, they reason, and the accounts that were there in behavioral thinking were not adequate. And so we were going to have to do both those things, find a solution to that. And I was worried that the leap to clinical theories of cognition would create problems. And in the early days, did a series of studies trying to look not at the impact of the procedures, but at whether, at whether or not they, they worked because of the principles that the early cognitive behavior therapists uh, uh, put, put out there. So can, let, I use, can I use an example? Yeah, yeah. Well, let me just let me just before you do that. Let me just so so you felt like Skinner was right and the CBT folks were right, but we needed exactly. to bring them both together. Exactly. And, and I thought they were both right, and they were both wrong. That they both were making mistakes, and they both had a point, and that we had to figure out a way to get the best of both. That we absolutely had to march into this issue of cognition and emotion and figure out how to bring it in, but that we shouldn't so easily let go of the contextual behavioral strand and let go of the idea of laboratory-based principles that we could bring into the clinic even when we're doing that. And so... Um, gotcha. Okay. But so, it wasn't obvious how to square that circle. So you were going to give an example. Well, the example I was going to give, and this led to this early skepticism uh, that the decision to go in the CBT direction was correct. So a, a classic study that had been done with what was then called coping statements of taking children who are afraid of the dark and teaching them to say uh, more empowering statements to themselves to help them deal with their fear. And the uh, protocol would have them practicing saying, I'm a brave boy, I can stay in the dark. And then they would do uh, a little exposure session and the child would be repeatedly taught to say this and then the adult would leave the room, they'd go into the dark room and the child was supposed to be saying out loud, I'm a brave boy, I can stay in the dark. And then sure enough, they're able to stay in the dark longer and then the uh, they'd come back and sort of reinforce, see you are a brave boy, uh, you've showed that you can do it, uh, you can stay in the dark, you know, you can do this. Uh, uh, well, uh, the idea, this um, Fred Kampfer, uh, uh, I think he's now dead. He was at the University of Cincinnati, a famous uh, early uh, cognitive behavior therapist, had done this study. And it's one of many, one of many. But we did this little manipulation, and you can see in the manipulation kind of how we're starting to try to put this in context. 
we thought, well, maybe part of what's going on there is that part of the context that, that's really critical is that the child knows that you know that they're in there saying that. And maybe it's kind of more like a promise. And, you know, people don't break promises easily. If you know, especially that you've made a promise, uh, you're less likely. You know, if you make a commitment to a friend to do something and then the friend can see whether or not you keep it, you know, you're going to try to keep it. So what we did was we took the children and uh, this was a study done by Erwin Rosenfarb, who's now a faculty member at, at, at Alliant University in San Diego many years ago. Uh, it was his master's thesis, I believe, in which we brought children in and we said, we're going to ask you to watch a TV show. Uh, if you push one of these buttons, each button has a different television show. Now, here's the manipulation. In one group, we say, and because when you watch TV, sometimes people don't know what you're watching. Don't push. tell us which button you're pushing until we leave the room so we won't know what you're watching. In the other group, we say, and so before we leave, just so I'll know what you're watching, can you point to which button you're going to push so I'll know which show that you've seen? And of course, no matter what button you push, you get the exact protocol that Fred Canfer had of teaching the little kids to say, I'm a brave boy, I can stay in the dark. But in one context, the child thinks you know that they know that. In the other context, the child thinks you don't know that they've seen that. They've seen that. And sure enough, if the child thought that you knew what show they're watching, you got exactly the results that have been showed earlier that had been used as evidence that cognition directly changes emotion and behavior. But if you're in the group that didn't push the button until you left the room, it had no effect, zero, nothing, nothing. If you ask the children later after the test, when they went into the dark room and showed no improvement, what they were supposed to have said to themselves, they could repeat back equally well. So they knew the words, I'm a brave boy, I can stay in the dark. They had seen the show, they remembered it. But it didn't make any difference because it was no longer in a social context in which some of these therapeutic effects have happened. Interesting. One of about eight studies that kept coming back and saying, no, it's the context, it's the context, it's a context. It isn't just thoughts directly, mechanically, billiard ball-like, making emotions and behavior. That happens. There is a relationship between what you think and feel and do, but that happens in a context. And you can change that context and get very different results. That became the seed of ACT. That is really the core shift between the central vision of the second wave, which is thoughts, cause, emotions, and behavior, to the central focus, I believe, of the third wave, which is your relationship to your own thoughts is determinative of how emotions and behavior congeal. Mm. Mm. Yeah. So just, I love, I love how you just walked into sort of the third wave, but if I can take you back a minute, um, it sounds like that study had some implications for the, this idea of like the positive thinking movement, um, you know, like that, that, that sort of has been happening lately with, with books like The Secret, you know, just, just sure. think more positively and you'll feel better. Um, like Stuart Smalley, right? Right, right. Like Stuart if I can Smalley. just sort of say to myself that I, I, I should just, you know, that I am a, a wonderful person who's perfect, who can do anything. Can, can you speak to that idea of sort of the idea of beliefs? It sounds like that's getting at sort of, do you believe that you're able to do things or you believe that you are a good person and that that somehow has an effect on behavior? Can, can you speak to that and how maybe act yeah, differs and there from were, that? There was, 
you know, at that time, there was, I had and others, a skepticism of the centrality of things like self-esteem, affirmations, positive self-statements, and so forth, because it seemed to me that they decontextualized uh, these kind of human experiences. The conditions under which normally you think positive things about yourself are conditions in the natural world in which uh, you've, for example, been told positive things because of the positive things that you've done. So it's like an after effect, not, a, not, not, a, not something effect, that happens not, before. Not a, a priority. Okay. And in fact, uh, what we're finding now, I mean, at the time we had the suspicion and we did these early studies showing that the model that was there just did not explain what we were getting. But we now have experiments that actually show, some of them very large ones, that some of these ideas can even be dangerous because you can easily arrange contexts that will get people to say positive things in a way that is actively harmful to themselves or others. Yeah, I can so, see like you tell some kid who's in the projects, uh, just be positive, you know, exactly. <laughs> and then life is crummy. Yeah. Uh, then all of a sudden they can get cynical, right? You know, I remember the, the very first place I it, it really hit me was – it was uh, just right after I'd gotten my uh, PhD and, and there was a wave of the importance of being assertive and talking about, um, uh, you know, what you wanted from other people. And I was, uh, had taken a job in the South and uh, one of my uh, coworkers, a colleague, Rosemary Nelson, a former president of, uh, now Nelson Gray, her last name, she's been married now. Uh, former president of ABCT and so forth, but one of a person who had a big influence on my career. And she uh, said, you know, uh, you can try it, but frankly, this is the South and I wouldn't recommend it. Well, I had a patient uh, in which I was really sort of spouting some of that traditional, you know, just believe in yourself, tell other people what you want, you know, who went home and promptly said that to her, her husband who whacked her upside the head. Oh, goodness. Mm. Because this Southern ladies just did not speak that way, mm-hmm. and it was not permitted. You know, and of course, uh, you know that doesn't mean we should just kind of uh, comply with the oppression of women. But you have to think about the context in which people, uh, you know, make take use of psychological knowledge. And it's one thing to talk about how important it is to be assertive when you're dealing with white males who are, uh, uh, you know. Uh, uh, middle-class folks it's a whole nother thing and and you talked about a person in the projects you know you really have to do that work to find out where the limits are we now know that for example if you take um, children who are who have low self-esteem and and you constantly tell them they're wonderful no matter what they do their self-esteem will go up but their performance doesn't go up and in some studies it's been shown that their violence actually goes up because, of course, then they can't understand why people are telling them that they're no good when they don't perform well. Because here, another part of their uh, development has been telling them they're wonderful no matter what they do. And that's just not what's going to happen when you get out of a school system in which teachers have been taught to only say that to kids, no matter what kind of performance or behavior you see. Mm-hmm. And so you really do have to think about these contextual effects. And, and I think that's uh, central to some of the act conceptions. But not just on the positive, also on the negative. If you see that context matters, and I'm a brave boy and I can stay in the dark, well, what are the contexts under which 
uh, I'm a terrible person, no one will love me, has its effects. What are the contexts in which, you know, I can't possibly give this talk, I'm going to make a fool out of myself, has its effects. Or the contexts in which, uh, you know, uh, uh, I will never be loved by anybody, uh, has its effects. And so we began to be interested in what are the conditions under which classic kind of um, maladaptive cognitions, the sort of things that cognitive behavior therapists were teaching people to detect, challenge, dispute, and change, could we instead focus on the contexts in which those thoughts had uh, 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 um, unhelpful effects and in a, more, in, a, in a quicker and more certain way get some alleviation of suffering and movement forward in their lives? And uh, that's sort of the seed from which ACT grew. Mm. So it's sort of like thoughts occur in a context they're married to each other they're both important and by understanding the context of thoughts and by targeting behavioral change you you sort of have a full a full sort of picture of both behavior and the meaning of the behavior and how it all kind of flows in a system is that kind of what it's getting at well you have a kind of a a, a christmas tree in which you could hang a full understanding but we we understood right away even though we had that intuition we had those early studies showing it was true in cbt and then very quickly we had early studies showing that we could flip it we could actually create contexts in which for example depressogenic thoughts would exist but not have an impact on depressive behavior that would lead to uh, persons getting caught in a de depressive uh, spiral and downturn we knew that the thing that was missing uh, wasn't just that sort of insight, but having the technical principles that would allow you to say, how does cognition actually work? How does it link to emotion, to sense of self, to behavior? And in a more systematically and, and technically precise way, can we think through how we can uh, uh, change contexts to change its uh, functional impact? but also work on times when actual cognitive change is important. It's not that that's impossible or can't occur, but you'd really want to understand it. So we had that vision of putting uh, this cognitive and emotional behavioral events in context, very much as you said, you know, you're having a podcast called, uh, called Act in Context. We wanted to do that. And we wanted to not forget that within this uh, functional contextual tradition, we want bottom-up principles. So the early work was done in the, in the 80s. We're not very far from a 30-year anniversary for ACT. The very, very first training in ACT was done at Broughton Hospital in 1982. So we're only a year away from a 30-year uh, anniversary for the first training, a public uh, a training event in ACT. But... Uh, the first real wave of studies didn't happen until the 2000s. And, and that was because we uh, never let go of this idea of working out uh, the basic principles and also the philosophical uh, work that will allow you to take a contextual approach in a, in a rigorous way rather than just kind of using it as a loose metaphor. Uh, we wanted it to guide a really progressive bottom-up science very much in the vision of behavior analysis and people like Skinner. And awesome. just and just to re, just to restate 
what I what my understanding of kind of what happened at, at my level, you, you kind of knew that you kind of had the basic techniques of act down in the in the early 80s. But you wanted to make sure that this time, instead of it being like the maybe like the psychoanalytic tradition where you weren't sure kind of why things were working or how they were working, you just knew that they kind of did work. You decided to kind of go back and lay that groundwork, figure out how language, maybe try and figure out a theory for how language and cognitions worked in addition to tying them to context and behavior. So that then when you started talking about ACT more publicly, you, you had the theory that it was grounded in, that, that it could be based upon. Is that kind of right? Yeah, that's exactly right. Um, and maybe even a little broader because we thought we would need measures and we tried to develop those. And we thought that we would need really careful philosophical work as well. And we did work on that as well. So um, part of that was because the things that we did to change the context immediately began to touch some of our spiritual and religious traditions and some traditions from Eastern psychology. And it didn't, and some other things, it touched some things from the deeper clinical traditions. You'll find things from Gestalt therapy, Rogerian ideas, even some analytic ideas, human potential movement. Uh, so our view was, is if you're going to take this very empirically focused tradition of behaviorism in, in interpreted from a contextualistic point of view and walk it into some of these deeper human issues, even touching things like mindfulness uh, and contemplative practice, that boy, you better have your ducks in a row or all you're really going to end up with is putting into the culture things that are already here because some of these early act methods, you know, we were just borrowing from other places. We were taking them out of Gestalt uh, protocols or human potential uh, exercises and things of that kind. And so uh, there was a real caution about doing that and a fear that it would not be progressive if we didn't do our homework. So in other words, you didn't want to just, it sounds like you wanted to include something sort of at the technology level. If we think about therapy as sort of like a technology or an application of like the how-to, you wanted to include a bunch of things that might be useful. We talked last time, uh, John and I, about sort of the idea of mindfulness in here, but that at a theoretical level or a philosophical level, you wanted coherence and, and a link to science. Is that accurate? Yeah, that's right. And we had a particular view of, you know, remember what the concern was with cognitive behavior therapy. The concern was is that the leap out of the laboratory into clinical models of cognition could lead us to to be caught up in things that are already there in the culture that turned out not to be really the case. And we had done those early studies. I gave you one example that said that's exactly right. That's exactly what's happening. These techniques do not work according to the processes that the developers are saying uh, that they work. We did mm. one of the earliest component analyses of cognitive therapy, which is now a very central issue in cognitive therapy because very large and very well-crafted studies have dismantled it. We in the early 80s did the, one of the very first dismantlings and found things that uh, have now been shown 25 years later. So early on, and that that move to go and look at process says theory matters, process matters, and these theories are not clicking. Well, then 
you can't just then come up with a technology that works pretty well. And we knew that it did. We did an early study, um, Rob Zettel's uh, dissertation, which was done in Philadelphia. I sent him to work with Tim Beck, you know, go learn cognitive therapy from the best. And he did. And he did a dissertation comparing Beck's cognitive therapy to our early work at the time. It was called comprehensive distancing. But it's about 70% of the things that we would have nowadays in an ACT uh, uh, protocol. And we were actually able to do a little better in outcomes. And the processes were different between those two. Very, very small study, very underpowered. But, uh, you know, if you're going to do that and you're going to say process matters, well, then you better know how to measure it. You better know what the processes are that you're really claiming are there. You better be clear. Uh, you can't just sort of go to a more common sense theory, which is exactly what we had criticized or I had worried about was happening right in front of me in the mid-70s as the behavior therapy uh, folks jumped to cognitive behavior therapy. Mm. So... The problem with that is you can't just snap your fingers and say, okay, well, then here's the theory. No, you have to do this careful bottom-up work. So, you know, ACT has a little tiny flash in the early to mid-80s, and then it just goes dark for more than a decade. And there are studies out there, but they're tiny, and they're not clinical studies. They're not randomized trials. They're studies on the underlying theory, mechanisms of action, process and so forth and then finally in the late 90s we think we're ready we put the the act book out in 1999 the rft book out uh, relational frame theory book in 2001 and now we're in a hugely different place you know now we have 3200 as of today members of the association for contextual behavioral science if we had had that in 1986 those 3200 people around the world you know the history of psychology would be different but we had like five people and it took a long time to get our ducks in a row enough that we felt as though we could put these things out. And even today, you know, I mean, I, I'm looking at an article sitting on my desk right here that I'm going to have to write a review of, you know, which is claiming that ACT has, you know, no supportive evidence and so forth. I mean, people can look at our data now, which I think are not slam dunk, but they're pretty reasonable. And we catch a lot of flack. People saying you're not, you know, you're, your measures aren't right. Your methods aren't right. You know, we did this before. This is all the same. So think about what would have happened if we had not done all of that development work. I think it was the right decision, but it, it did slow the development of the work. I'm just wondering at the time, fears you might have had that other people are going to do what we want to do, that people will steal our ideas, that we'll be too late to the game, that other people will come up with other stuff and will become irrelevant. Like, was there... A, a tremendous amount of discipline and angst in 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 deciding to go ahead and take such a basic well, you know, theory-based approach? There's another strand in here, which is part of where ACT comes from is my own panic disorder. And so, you know, I was only too happy to put the thing on the, the slow <laughs> path. <laughs> I wasn't looking to get out there and give talks to a thousand people. Um and and I, I'm playing a little bit, but not completely. I mean, I, I really, uh, I didn't think, the answer is no. I never really thought of it that way, in part because we were so far out of the mainstream. I mean, you, nowadays, you know, you, you can't go into a conference without mindfulness this and mindfulness that and acceptance this and acceptance that. 
you know, we were talking about these things to conferences and so forth, but literally five people are in the room, 10 people are in the room. I mean, nobody cared. So there was no indication of what was about to happen. I, I actually made a bet with uh, one of my students who's now at the dean at the University of Albany, uh, Elga Wolfert, that within 15 years, this thing was going to explode and she was going to have to buy me a dinner. And she did. She paid off. Uh, but uh, I, I did think it was going to come, but I think it, I thought it was going to come about at the timing that it did. I, towards the end, I got worried. It is true. When I was writing the ACT book or we were doing the early work on the AAQ, uh, there are emails from people like Kirk Strassel, my colleague, saying, we better get going or, uh, you know, you're going to be completely scooped. But uh, early on and for at least a decade, it never occurred to me because we were just so far out of the mainstream. Mm-hmm. Gotcha. So just just to kind of wrap up a little bit, um, I, I'm sensitive to the time that we have for, for this episode, but um, if you can maybe take a couple of minutes and talk a little bit about so the third wave, if we want to call it that, sounds like it's got some uh, a focus on context and how context can matter as sort of the, the the unit we want to be examining, and maybe that's how we can influence behavior in the way that we're we're hoping will will make a difference in someone's life. So, but we've talked a little bit about mindfulness and this idea of values. Can you sort of wrap that all together and talk about how how sort of the mindfulness piece is? considered the third wave of behavior therapy and where that values piece comes in like does that link up to behaviorism in any way and can you talk about those and, two sort of pieces to the model and jen let me just add steve the, to jen's question we we know that john kabat-zinn was doing stuff with mindfulness you know we we know that there was this thing called dialectical behavioral therapy which most of our listeners will not have never heard of but within this world dbt is is viewed as a cousin of act and maybe as a predecessor but like try and try and talk about some of those early components that were in the soup and how they did or didn't um, play into what Jen asked you to describe, which is kind of the basics of third wave and 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 act. Right. Well, some of this um, is a cohort change. I mean, some of these things that you're seeing, you think about who are the leaders of uh, traditional CBT. You know, they're people who sort of grew up in the '50s. And who are the leaders of the uh, third wave? They're people who really kind of grew up in the 60s and 70s, the, the most senior folks. And so who knows what's going to happen next, but uh, <laughs> probably the Generation Xers will decide. But uh, uh, when they get just a little more power, the, um, the, the key idea of context, when you begin to focus not on the content of what you feel and think, sense and remember, but on your relationship to it, that's a contextual idea. It's the one I focused on when I was talking earlier that, that we found in our early research, but we weren't the only ones. Uh, and indeed, the mindfulness folks uh, who I was aware of, and uh, but didn't I really didn't see uh, coming until much later on what was going to happen. But I was aware that they were out there, and I felt the resonance. I understood the resonance. If you see the earliest writing, I mean, the very first. Um, very, very fair first article kind of on ACT is called Making Sense of Spirituality and on RFT. It's 1984. And there's two paragraphs in there on uh, mindfulness. I think John Kabat-Zinn's actually mentioned. You know, so we kind of knew he was out there and connected and we saw the, the deep resonance um, to what we were doing of uh, you know, mindfulness folks uh, know 
And, you know, I, as a child of the 60s, you know, I lived on a religious commune that was an Eastern-based uh, commune, Ananda Farm, here in, uh, in Grass Valley, not too far from where I'm sitting right now, in California. You know, I had chanted and meditated and gone to those retreats, and, you know, I knew something about the contextual nature of that uh, experience. Um, dialectical behavior therapy hadn't formed in the early days. I've known Marsha since and done research with her, actually published work with her before there was a dialectical behavior therapy. Um, but uh, these strands were kind of in the wind and were moving forward. The third wave really, I think, is uh, shifting the central focus of the uh, context uh, of the cognitive behavior therapies towards this idea that it's your relationship to what you feel, think, sense, and remember that's most key in determining uh, positive outcomes. And that's true of all of these new methods. Now, some of the seeds of that, some of the seeds of that go back to the second and first generation. The third, third wave is not a revolution against the first and second. It's just the next manifestation. Uh, it was really meant as as kind of a complementary term. Some people have thought that it means they're old hat and replaced, and I regret that connotation. Recently, I've been using the term contextual CBT to talk about the third wave, just to avoid the idea that you're old hat if you don't agree. Right. I don't want to make that claim. Uh, you know, and if you look at something like my mentor, David Barlow, I mean, his work on interoceptive exposure I've always thought planted the seeds of the third wave. I mean, and I know where he, he was, you know, I was there when he was developing some of these ideas and he was developing some of these ideas sort of around the same time as developing some of our ideas. And, and just for those folks who don't know what interoceptive exposure is, that's when you expose someone to the sensations within their body that are usually related to panic, um, yeah. like heightened breathing and heart rate and things like that. Exactly. <laughs> and what, what David found is you could take people who are, were really afraid of what their body was doing with their bodies and, and they were in a relationship in which this was fearsome and something to be avoided and run from and instead you would play with it you deliberately create it you'd spin around in a chair you'd breathe through a straw and you kind of look at what does your body feel like when that happens and is that really your enemy and do you really have to do anything about that and is it okay to have that and are you going to go crazy if you uh, you know have a feeling uh, that comes from hyperventilating and uh, you could kind of explore the territory. Well, that is a shift from, uh, you know, avoiding running and defending to one of opening, exploring and sensing. And and uh, David deserves part of the credit. He created the grounds Now most people would call that second generation CBT, I suppose. But I don't think it need be. I think it really is part of a transition into this relationship, contextual focus and you know, David is a contextual behavioral thinker. I mean, he's uh, came out of the behavior analytic wing. He was editor of the Journal of Applied Behavior Analysis. So it's not uh, too uh, surprising that he would see that. And he's just one example of many. So what has happened over the last, let's say, 15 years, and especially over the last decade, is the principles and procedures that are focused on the relationship to what you feel, think, sense, and remember have over and over again been playing out in component analyses. When you take little sections of the treatments, they work. 
in process accounts, when you look at what changes that predicts positive outcomes over time, there are those kinds of processes and in just clinical outcome studies. And so there's a, we now have a family of interventions. They come from different theoretical traditions, which I think is kind of neat. There are some that are quite cognitive, some that are quite behavioral, some that are a mix of other things outside of uh, either of those traditions. But they all, whether it's motivational interviewing or metacognitive therapy or mindfulness-based cognitive therapy or dialectical behavior therapy or ACT or any of the other allied ones, they all have procedures that focus on how to be more open, how to be more aware, and how to be more actively engaged. And Steve, and let, each let, of those elements I think will hold up over time. I think when we're finished, open, aware, and active will be the consensus model of CBT. And probably by that time, you won't even have to call it contextual CBT. You certainly won't be calling it third wave. It'll just be empirically focused uh, cognitive behavior therapy. And just to, and just to, for our listeners that that are just really new to psychology in general, let me just maybe ask ask if this example would help illustrate. So, let's say someone has obsessive compulsive disorder. So they've got yeah. you know this fear that you know there are these germs and the germs are going to make them sick, and and so they develop these compulsions to to try and uh, you know get get rid of the anxiety that these obsessive thoughts cause. I guess a cognitive theory model would be. To say, hey, don't worry, you won't get sick. Those, ger- you know, your th- your thoughts about these germs are irrational, and you shouldn't think them. Uh, people are safe, and they'll be safe, and everyone gets along, and don't worry about it. So, a cognitive a cognitive approach would try and say, hey, change that thought or reconsider that thought. What would the what would what would the contextual uh, or the um, you know what what would your approach sure. be? Third wave approach be. Well, just the, the, summer the relationship. Way, the second wave is a little cartoon-like. It would be more sophisticated. And there would be behavioral exercises for people to actually explore their deepest fears, to test whether or not it happens. It, I don't know. Anybody would say, hey, just don't think that. But, you know, I get what you're trying to say is that the focus would be on the, uh, the kind of catastrophic thinking that you're engaging in uh, that allows you to sort of be carried away. The more contextual approach would try to slow this experience down to help the person learn to watch their thoughts with a little bit of distance between the part of them that's aware and the and what they're aware of. They wouldn't move so quickly to try to reassure yourself with if you're having a, a, a frightening thought or to argue it away, but to simply spend the time to really kind of notice it, notice when it occurs, what it feels like when it occurs. You might actually do some things which would sort of play with that thought. You might sing it or you might repeat it uh, aloud uh, uh, multiple times or uh, you might imagine a child saying that and what your reaction would be. So you would you would put it into different contexts, including paralinguistic contexts like the tone of voice and, and the, whether or not you're singing or saying and so forth with the hopes that you get a little bit of distance, a little bit of separation and you can kind of see that thought as a bit of your programming that's occurring here and it doesn't necessarily have to be argued with or believed it doesn't have to be complied with or resisted it's just you can notice it and then do what you need to do in that situation uh, whether or not you're thinking that thought you might teach the person to do the same things with their emotions to spend more time to really feel what it feels like to be anxious 
Where does it? Where do they feel it in their body? What sort of rises and falls to you know to watch these things from a an aware but separate place in which you're not uh, you know struggling with it and fighting with it, but you're uh, treating your own experience with some kindness and curiosity. You might uh, teach attentional flexibility, help people to sort of be watching a thought, but then shift to something else, like a sound occurring in the room or a behavior that they're engaging in, not to make the thought go away, but to show that there's many things in the current environment you can attend to, and you can bring your attention into the moment in a flexible way based on what you need to do here. You might try to find a sense of there's more to you than just what you feel and what you think. And contemplative practice will get you in touch with the continuity of consciousness, this more spiritual place that most of us know about, sometimes from our spiritual and religious training. And you can bring it into the therapy room and help people to sort of find a place in which they can be aware, but there's a separation that who I am isn't simply my worries and my anxieties, but I'm also a point of awareness watching this. And then we would really want to know, you know, if you weren't struggling, if you hadn't put your life on hold, what would you want to be doing, not just in the world of behavior, but in the in the deep meaning of the behavior? What do you want to have your moments of living reflect? And is there something you could do right here, right now that would do that? Now, you would find in that, for example, that we might do some deliberate exposure to things that the person has previously tried to avoid, which is very much what both the first and second wave folks would do. The first wave folks would do it to help the the uh, conditioned emotional response diminish, very likely. The second wave folks would do it to test the veracity of an irrational cognition or a, uh, a, a maladaptive uh, schema. The third wave folks will do it to uh, produce response flexibility, to find that use different ways of relating to these events that in the past have narrowed you down and demanded that you do something so that a person who's afraid of dirt, for example, can put their hand in the dirt and tell a joke. They can put their hand in the dirt and engage in an interesting conversation with somebody. Uh, there's a lot of things you can do even when you're contacting things that your mind tells you demands only a few mm. things. And so that combination of openness, awareness, and flexible engagement and values-based action is what we would try to put together. And you will notice it has elements from the first wave. It has elements from the second wave. It stands on the shoulders of those giants. Not, It's not opposed to them. It's not rebelling against them. It's just trying to carry the work forward and uh, uh, try to uh, uh, explore a different territory from a, a, a different assumption uh, with processes and procedures that you can test. And so far, what they seem to be saying is those processes, those procedures have power in them. And they're helpful to people. They're not a panacea. We've not figured it out. We're going to know more later. And some of these ideas are wrong. We just don't know which ones are. But they do appear to be a step forward. And I get this feeling that there's an overriding sense that sometimes people might benefit from realizing that that thoughts sometimes are just thoughts that, that they sometimes can give them people can give thoughts too much power give feelings too much power 
that that sometimes there's a benefit when you say changing the relationship, not getting bogged down in logic traps, not getting bogged down in in language and in finding out what's right or wrong, but instead just holding language a little bit more loosely and lightly and holding experiences and emotions and memories and feelings more loosely instead of taking it all sometimes too seriously? Yeah, exactly. Okay. And not just by telling people that, by arranging experiences so people can find that to be true. And that has that actually some of those insights are in the second generation of CBT, but they got overwhelmed by the detect, challenge, dispute, and change part. And the so there's a strand there of what you just said that you know a lot of traditional CBT folks would agree with, and uh, they're right to say that some of these ideas were already there, but. Uh, they really did get overwhelmed in the technology and principles that people were uh, uh, putting forth. And, and I think we've been able to refine it and step forward uh, and, and maybe make some progress. I say maybe because that's up to the the human lives that we work with and, and what they really show and what they really say and the data that we collect on what happens. But so far, I think we have to I think even a critical a skeptical observer would say that there probably is something of importance inside these acceptance and mindfulness-based procedures that will be lasting, that will be part of what we're doing for generations. And tell us those three words again that you said it's going to all boil down to in the end. Open, aware, and engaged. Uh, I think uh, it's there in every one of the modern forms of CBT, of finding a way to be more open with our thoughts and feelings, to be more flexible in our attentional processes and more aware and to be more actively engaged in the world of behavior mm. with what it is that we really want to be about in our lives. Well, you think, Jen, that's a pretty good summary. I think that is, and I think we're pretty much out of time. <laughs> um, but I think that's a nice a nice way to sort of come full circle. So. Well, that was Steve, great fun, gang. Yeah, well, we hope to have Go you ahead. on the podcast again, but I, I think this is going to be a fabulous primer to bring people up to speed on on why act the role act is attempting to play so super thank you for your time thanks so much thanks for being for here steve and i really enjoyed it and uh, uh, good luck with the uh sessions as you go forward i think it's a really uh, worthwhile thing for the community and just for folks absolutely okay. and we'll, we'll just remind our our listeners that, that this podcast was brought to you again by acbs contextualpsychology.org <laughs> slash podcast right mm-hmm. acbs all right we'll we'll uh, we'll see you guys again soon thank Take you so care, much all right thanks a lot bye the act in context podcast is a production of the association for contextual behavioral science please check us out at contextualpsychology.org slash podcast music was brought to you by armory <laughs>